Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. All fat is not necessarily unhealthy, but the term itself has been associated with something bad. Joining us today is Stephen Resnick, an internist in Boca Raton, Florida, who has graciously offered to discuss some of the issues in understanding fat, obesity, weight loss, and the danger of and how to control unhealthy weight. Dr. Resnick, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dr. Strauss. Fat is probably one of the reasons why we survived over the years because food supplies were not always available. For many, there is now an abundance of food. The survival mechanism of storing fat that once helped us to survive may now be killing us. Let's begin with a basic question. What is fat and when does fat go from healthy to unhealthy? If we go back 10,000 years ago, we, we were hunters. And in order to obtain food, required a tremendous expenditure of energy and, and certain risk. Human beings didn't know from meal to meal when their next meal would be or if there was going to be a next meal. So when they were fortunate enough to expend energy and catch an animal or prey and eat it, they ate as much as they possibly could. Fat is a form of stored energy. It's actually a connective tissue, and fat is stored in cells called adipocytes, and it's a form of energy. Every time fat is stored and broken down, it produces twice as much energy as protein and sugar. So it's a very efficient form of stored energy in past times when we didn't know when we were going to get our next meal. And there was concerns about someone starving to death and not having enough energy. In today's modern society, with all our conveniences, it's stored excess calories that we don't need in excess of what we burn up. In its original role, fat was stored in the subcutaneous tissue that's right under the skin. It was used to both keep our body temperature at a normal level and insulate us from the cold in the environment, and it, it also provided a certain amount of cushioning. But with our modern conveniences and with our excess of portion sizes and foods that are very rich in energy and calories, plus our lack of burning up energy and calories with all the conveniences of the modern day world, we now store it as fat. The adipocytes, the fat cells, connective tissue cells, which should be under the skin, now sometimes populate the belly or the abdominal cavity, and they also surround some of the vital organs, including the heart, where we have epicardial fat pads and the liver, causing fatty liver, and they cause disease. This is sometimes what people call white fat. Sometimes people will hear that there's brown fat. Is, is there a major difference from a, an internist's point of view? My knowledge of brown fat is brown fat that was something that was initially found predominantly in infants, and it was a way of maintaining their body temperature. Brown fat was unique in the fact that instead of releasing energy, it re released heat. Brown fat in adults is mostly stored in the upper chest and in the upper neck, and it's actually being looked at as a, a mechanism for weight reduction pharmaceutical companies are pursuing the idea either increasing brown fat or converting regular fat to brown fat, which will then produce heat rather than excess calories. And they think it's a way in the future to trigger weight loss rather than storage of energy as abdominal girth. But adults have very little brown fat that we know of. Most of the fat that, that we're talking about is white fat. Where does fat come from? Is it from fatty foods or does it come from everything that we eat? 
I believe it comes from everything that we eat. Fatty foods are higher in what we call glycemic index, higher in calories. Based on our energy input and energy usage, the more calories you take in, the more you're going to store as fat for future use in reserve. The body still thinks that it's hunting. It has to store as much energy as it can because it doesn't know when it's going to get its next meal. It doesn't realize that its next meal is five feet away in your refrigerator. True. Our society has changed enormously. Let me ask you a question about sugars because we constantly hear about this. There's sucrose, glucose, fructose. You see foods that are high fructose, corn syrup. Are these ultimately all the same or are there differences that we need to worry about? Years ago, most of the products had generalized white sugar. They try to stay away from white sugar. Popular drinks like Coca-Cola, candies, all were made with sugar. Several years ago, the government relaxed its regulations on the use of fructose-rich corn syrup. Apparently, when we were consuming natural sugar, there were certain feedback mechanism, regulation in our own body and brain. We took in a certain amount, had a sense of comfort and satisfaction, and the brain told us we didn't need any more. Fructose corn syrup bypasses that, and we never get that feeling of having enough. It's also exceedingly cheaper than regular sugar. So soda manufacturers and candy manufacturers and product manufacturers have been switching to this corn syrup now for years. The problem is our brain doesn't know when we're full. Our brain doesn't know when we've had enough, so we get taking in more calories. We're sort of battling chemical demons as well as lack of exercise and burning with energy. You said before we actually went on to record this, a very interesting observation that a lot of schools are discussing whether or not to keep soda machines available to the students. One of the crises in education in the United States and one of the crises in public health funding for education. The things that have suffered the most have been health and nutritional education and physical exercise. Children are no longer required to take home economics courses where they learn how to shop and prepare food in a healthy manner. They're no longer required hygiene and health courses where they learn the basics of staying healthy and eating healthy, using nutrition to prevent disease. At the same time, they have grave financial crises in the school. So the school systems are looking for ways to generate revenue. And the soda manufacturers and fast food manufacturers are only too happy to provide extra revenue by being able to sell their products in school cafeterias. So it's not uncommon to see soda machine and fast food restaurants, which sell the very foods that a high in glycemic index and promote weight gain quickly in school cafeterias at the elementary, middle school, and high school level. With kids who have no concept of nutrition, the belief is, is that this is contributing to the obesity crisis in young children and adults within the last month. There was a report that we're seeing uh, numerous numbers of children with type 2 diabetes all of it due to the excess weight and obesity. Now, type 2 diabetes used to be called adult-onset diabetes because we didn't see it in young people. We saw it in older people who were sedentary and had gained a lot of weight, but we're seeing it in young children now. So school systems are beginning to rise up under parental pressure, and certain legislative groups are now removing the soda machines and the vending machines and some of the fast food companies from their cafeteria so the kids have a chance. 
One of the concepts that we've used in medicine is something called the BMI. BMI is a body mass index. It's one of the benchmarks of health. We're familiar growing up as children as height and weight tables, and we would equilibrate how tall we would be with our weight, and is that considered within a norm? The body mass index is a measure of health and fitness endorsed by the Surgeon General of the United States. It takes into consideration the height and weight of a person to give an accurate index of what her height and weight should be. It's just a little different. Recently, I read an article that even the BMI is no longer considered the measurement of Vogue. The measurement of Vogue is considered the hip-to-waist ratio with men having a hip-to-waist ratio over 1 and I believe women over 0.68 being considered high risk for sudden death from heart disease with direct correlation between hip-waist index and the development of sudden death and cardiovascular disease. This is a evolving science of what are we going to measure? Are we going to measure just simply height and weight? Are we going to measure? And there are tables to convert height and weight to body mass index. A healthy body mass index is 25 or below. Above 25 is considered overweight. When you're in the 30 to 39 range, you're obese. And these are the people who we consider at high risk to develop cardiovascular disease, vascular disease, diabetes. And certainly a BMI over 40 is extremely obese, and, and these people are at high risk for multiple diseases, even skeletal disease, because there's a toll on the bones and the supporting structures of carrying around that much weight against gravity. We often hear the term insulin resistance, and it raises the larger question of how is it if we're overweight, we have too much fat, how is that related to insulin, blood pressure problems? How, do you, how does an internist make the bridge? In the last few years, we've talked about the metabolic syndrome, and which has to do with people with big guts, fat stored in their belly, who have a higher risk for diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. As you gain weight, certain chemical changes occur. Let's first start with insulin. Insulin is a chemical that's produced by a portion of a body called the pancreas. Sugar, energy needs to enter the cell. I like to think of sugar as a fuel, much like the gas you put in the car. The problem is you can't get the fuel into the factory to make the energy without insulin. The membrane of the cell is not permeable, doesn't permit the sugar to pass through and get inside and be used without insulin. And insulin binds to these fuel sugars, binds to the wall of the cell. It's almost like a lock going into a key, open a passageway. The energy goes in without insulin. Fuel can't get in. You can't use it effectively. Now, as we gain weight, they believe the number of binding sites, insulin receptor sites, or lock-in key sites on the surface of the cell diminishes. And they've actually done studies where they've looked at fat cells. They've put them in environments rich in energy, rich in foods, they get fat, the number of binding sites reduces, they then take away the energy and starve the cell, it shrinks, the number of binding sites increases, and the same amount of insulin works better to control your blood sugar. So we have the element of insulin resistance not allowing you to efficiently make energy. When you can't get energy, your body goes to other means of metabolism, anaerobic metabolism, which is less efficient and produces more toxins and produces a disease state unless you shut it off very, very quickly. Certainly, there are strong associations between weight gain, blood pressure going up, inability to use the insulin that you have to control your blood sugar, and elevation of your lipids, 
your triglycerides, your cholesterol, and the less favorable types of cholesterol. Losing weight, just beginning to lose weight, we see your blood pressure going down. When we have a person who starts a weight reduction program and cuts their calories, fats, and sugars, their blood pressure drops. It drops before they get anywhere near their goal weight. Just the act of losing weight and eating correctly lowers your blood pressure. The same thing can be said for exercise. People who exercise and begin an exercise program, and I'm not talking about signing up at a gym and going to a vigorous exercise class. I'm talking about 20 minutes of walking at a comfortable pace every evening is enough to begin to lower your blood pressure and help your sugar metabolism and improve your health. You've been practicing medicine a long time. You've seen people go through fads up and down and so on. Where do you think or why do you think there is a psyche out there that there's so much obesity? What are we missing? What what do you as an internist do and we as physicians do to help people understand that it's just not benign to be overweight? Having personally balanced weight control issues, I realized that there's a disconnect between intellectually understanding that carrying extra weight is detrimental to your health and actually being able to take action and improve your lifestyle. There's a recent study I read that was in the American Journal of Public Health that said people who practice low-risk behaviors, that would include not smoking, eating healthy, getting enough exercise, and limiting their alcohol to moderate intake, were 63% less likely to die during their study period, which ran from 1988 to 2006, which is a pretty long period. Just those simple things. So I I don't think that people necessarily truly believe that this is going to affect them. It's so easy to gain weight, and it's so easy to use food at times of stress for comfort, and it's so easy to pick up fast food on the way home because your life today is so much more hectic and so much more stressful. There's so little free time. We're expected to work much longer hours and much harder with less vacation time. And it's just so easy to make poor choices. So we tend to choose our psychic health over our physical health at times. At times, correct. When I see a person who's at high risk, we sit down and we have a conversation. I had one of those conversations with one of my diabetic patients yesterday. And after preventing it in a professional manner and and, and realizing that it just wasn't getting through, I looked at him and I said, sir, you are a train wreck looking for an intersection and a time to occur. It's not as if it isn't going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. And my job is to convince you that there are things that you have control of that can prevent this. And we need to start now, today, this minute, not next week, not next month. But we can't do that unless you believe. A lot of people will say, but Doc, isn't there an easier way to do this? What about the diet pills? What about the surgeries that I hear about? Why don't I start with those? I think there's a place for everything. You have to start somewhere, and you actually want to start with the simplest things if you possibly can. The best surgery is no surgery if you don't need it. Bariatric surgery is a wonderful option failed every other avenue of weight reduction and lifestyle improvement, but it doesn't come without risk. And I've had many patients over the years who have lost the weight after bariatric surgery, 
and then gain it back. They have to be on a rather strict diet, but because we don't really deal with the emotional and psychological causes, they get into problems again. They find that malteds, ice cream, alcohol go down easily, and they're all very high in sugar, fat, calories, what we call cheap calories, and they gain it all back. They gradually stretch their surgically corrected organs. While we've treated them physically, we haven't included appropriate emotional counseling so that they can deal with their eating habits. It it takes work to lose weight. And one of the statistics is that a 12-ounce can of non-diet soda has 10 teaspoons of sugar in it. That's a lot. And I say, picture eating 10 teaspoons of sugar. They can't do that. I said, but you've just consumed it in liquid form. Sometimes you have to do these almost theatrical, dramatic things to get the idea across. There's no question about it. We keep a model of a pound of fat in the office to give an idea what we're really talking about. The products that we're asking the patients to give up, or at least have in moderation, are delicious. A cold soft drink on a, on a hot day is, is an occasional treat. We're not asking people to never have it. We're just asking them to have it in a proportion that's appropriate to their energy usage and their goals of a certain type of body weight. It's not easy to do, but you're right. I would much rather have that person eat a piece of fruit, have a small orange, have some berries. I must also tell you that what you alluded to before is very critical. A lot of times it's the simple little things. My internist told me a long time ago that if I park at the other end of the parking lot when I go grocery shopping or when I go to a mall, that five minutes here, that five minutes there of walking, it adds up. I've just finished reading a book by a Dr. Wayne Scott Anderson who works with John Hopkins and the Metafast Corporation in a program called Take Shape for Life. And they have a weight reduction program, plus they have a transition and they have a maintenance program for life. Part of the maintenance is motion, not necessarily a formally exercise program, but keeping in motion. He talks about burning up thermal energy by things like tapping your toes, tapping your fingers and parking at the other end of the parking lot and walking a few flights of stairs if you have that opportunity so you can work into what we call our daily routine and activities of daily living, burn up a few extra 100 calories a day so that you can take off some weight and don't put it back on. It's what we have to do. Steve Resnick is an internist in Boca Raton, Florida. Dr. Resnick, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for having me. It's an important topic and anything we can do to educate our colleagues and the public to deal with this epidemic of obesity and make the country healthier is just uh, wonderful.